welcome to Green and Red, Scrappy Politics for Scrappy People, a regular podcast on radical, environmental and anti-capitalist politics, brought to you by Bob Bazanka and Scott Parker. Welcome to the Silky Smooth Sounds of the Green and Red podcast. I'm your co-host, Scott Parkin, coming to you from Berkeley, California today. And as always, I'm joined by... Bob Bazenko in Ohio. And as always, thank you to our listeners for supporting Sorry. us and sharing videos. So uh, um, keep it up. <laughs> and uh, uh, I'm looking forward to today's show. And we have, it seems like we have two guests. Uh, <laughs> uh, for sure, we have uh, uh, Alexander Reed Ross joining us today uh, from Portland. Alex is an adjunct professor in the Department of Geography at Portland State University, a doctoral fellow at the Center for Analysis of the Radical Right, a research fellow at Political Research Associates, and author of Against the Fascist Creep. And today we're going to be talking about political violence in the U.S. We're going to be talking about current situations around the far right. Uh, and we're very excited to have Alex today. We're both big fans and have been reading up a lot of Alex's writings. Uh, and so welcome to Green and Red, Alex. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. I appreciate the kind words too. Wow. Yeah. Uh, we always like to make our guests feel very welcome. So, you know, just to, to kick off, looking at the, the history of political violence in the U.S. by non-state actors, because there's a lot we could say about the state actors and their <laughs> violence. Uh, we've had many other shows on that. Um, you know, historically, we've seen violence on the right perpetrated by vigilantes, militias, racist organizations, people having reactions to progressive forces like, you know, reconstruction or immigration and left movements, socialist anarchists, et cetera. Um, there's also a bit of a history of political violence on the left, where it's mostly been formed around self-defense, things like unions fighting for rights to organize, many other things. Um, how would you say that violence and violent actions, like just kind of just to, kind of to get a general feel, um, you know, affects politics? How does violence affect politics when there is violence? Well, uh, I mean, it's at the root of politics in some sense. Uh, I mean, it's at the root of human, the human experience. Um, I don't think that violence is some sort of all-consuming motivational factor, motivating factor for, um, human existence or anything like that, but I definitely think it is one of those forces at the core of, uh, of life that is almost impossible to avoid. Um, I, you know, obviously prefer nonviolence and I don't, and I think that, you know, when we think of politics, we sort of re revert to, especially in a democracy, this Aristotelian idea that politics is what happens when, you know, people come together in a city and work together in some sort of mutual aid. You know, um, Giovanni Sartori talked about how um, the theory of democracy sort of hinges on an Aristotelian vision of um, a stateless uh, society. And of course, there's all kinds of things wrong with that. Uh, Arist Aristotle, you know, was a patriarchal moron in many regards, but he did say that democracy uh, as a form of, you know, equalizing politics <clears throat> is the best form. Um, 
the thing is though you know you have to contend and i mean stop me if you don't want to hear me you know just babbling and bloviating about greek philosophy but um you have to contend with this sort of like the anticyclotic theory of uh of politics you know this sort of like um vician uh pendulum right that you know people have democracy but it is sort of uh, overdetermined by uh, wealth inequality and class structures that are basically written into uh, a popular solidarity of the city. Um, and so, you know, violence, I think, is in some ways, it can be an equalizing factor where, you know, those types of people are uh, brought down, right? In this, you know, I think of like a medieval sort of uh, uh, Cruel Thursday, you know, sort of like Mardi Gras style Rabelaisian riot of sort of uh, festive revolt where uh, elites were sort of paraded through the cities and um, uh, peasants wore their clothes um, and basically kicked them out. But there's also other forms like uh, Machiavelli forming the defense militia of the Florentine Republic, you know. Um, trying to fight against the, uh, the oligarchs of that time in, uh, in Italy. So, you know, violence is part of inequality, right? It, uh, uh, it's part of power over, you know, as our friend Scott Crow likes to say, um, but it can also be part of an equalizing um, movement to, uh, to take power back. Um, the problem is that you still have to deal with inequity, and so things get really recursive. You know, even um, we were talking before about comparing Trump to, to previous presidents, um, and there's I'm, I teach classes on protest and class struggle and things, so I know a little bit about this, and there's always been, obviously, violence, especially state violence in the U.S., but for the most part, the United States wasn't created out of as much of a struggle as, say, Europe was, which had a struggle for, you know, like revolutions and suffrage movements and things like that. So the U.S., my bigger point is that the U.S. for a lot of its modern era, especially post-Civil War, has relied on things like culture or kind of commodification or, you know, consumerism to keep people more or less, you know, happy, docile, content, whatever word you want to use, appeased, rather than violence. But we've definitely seen a shift recently where, um, especially with Trump, the state is far more willing to use overt violence and even call in these uh, what is the Portland police call them heavily armed friendlies, you know, like the Patriot prayer and the proud boys. So, I mean, do you see that there's this shift away from like a lot of these older strategies like culture and commodification and, uh, consumerism into now, because we're in this era of systemic crisis and, and precarity, uh, a far more violent and, and therefore one-sided approach. You know, the, the violence right now is essentially, a, a monopolized by the right. Well, I think um, it's weird. <laughs> we have, we basically, you know, the, the United States far right has become normalized and they've always been extraordinarily violent. Um, you know, I mean, people are talking about the, the murder that happened in, in Portland not long ago, uh, politically motivated. Um, but there's also a history of uh, anti-fascists being attacked and shot in the city. One guy who was, I think, a member of Rose City Antifa was actually shot in the back by a fascist who was never arrested by the police um, and was paralyzed from that. Uh, and that was, you know, 10 years ago or so. 
So, you know, the thing is that those people, those types of people um, on the right wing are now, you know, basically free to live out their fantasies. And I do think that there is a chauvinistic urge to incite and to engage in uh, violent incidents um, almost as a pastime. There's a lot of overconfidence um, on the far right. And we're seeing them basically just showing up and counter-protesting um, and picking fights, picking brawls in the streets with uh, counter-protesters. That's happening all over the country. And it is being, uh, in many cases, it is being sort of officially sanctioned by, uh, by political leaders um, and by you know, various sheriffs and, and that sort of thing. Um, so... Yeah, I think, I mean, what do you say about, about the culture of violence, you know, and, and the sort of cycles, uh, feedback loops that it sort of produces? Um, I'm not sure if it's possible to break that cycle, but I do think that there are historic examples where the sort of, you know, political behavior was sanctioned. You know, I want to say the late 19th century sort of uh, anti-Chinese leagues and that sort of thing. You know, um, when I when I think about the Proud Boys, for example, I increasingly think of, you know, these sort of late 19th century leagues of men who would basically uh, carry out acts of violence and riot in order to sort of take power. I mean, I think one of one of the things that many of us said in 2016 with Trump is that, you know, the, the real fear wasn't even the, like the policies and things. It was that he would unleash these, you know, people. He would legitimate them. And, and that's what we're seeing. And it, it seems like, you know, there's continued outrage, you know, about these armed groups going to the state house and things like that. But but they're not stopping. And there's no real kind of effective, you know, you can't shame them, you know, uh, and that seems different in in you know, modern times, let's say post-World War II era, there's always been state violence, absolutely, LBJ, Nixon, everybody, right? There's always been racial state violence, but but it's never, I think, come from, like, incited from the White House the way it has been now and legitimated, and you have the Attorney General, you know, providing cover, you have police calling these people heavily armed friendly, so, I mean, do you see this as, like, a significant new elevation, escalation in this? I think, well, I mean, of course it's an escalation. Um, I think the, the fascinating sort of rhyme in, in historical terms, perhaps, is looking at massive resistance to integration in the South, because that was the last time, I believe, that the uh, executive branch uh, used the Insurrection Act, and it was to integrate schools because the Southern, you know, uh, citizen councils um, uh, were organizing basically just grass, what they called, you know, massive resistance riots and, and incredible violence against civil rights protesters who made it their mission to remain nonviolent. And right now we have the Oath Keepers calling for Trump to deploy the Insurrection Act for, it seems, the opposite purpose as part of a massive resistance uh, program against the left. And so, yeah, at that point, like that's kind of that's kind of where I see things. It's like the president is is co-signing and actually, uh, I believe, leading an insurgency against, you know, movements for political equality in the United States. 
And that, you know, that's what's so warped and upside down about it is, that, you know, um, you know, Eisenhower was trying to do the opposite in a way. It, and also to me, it, it seems like 2020, the, there's like a, a turmoil going on right now in 2020. We've been seeing like erosion of the social safety net for a few decades. It seems like we're very much moving into like gilded age economics. We've had this pandemic, which has ravaged the country. Uh, and then we've had this sort of like Milton uprisings for Black Lives Matter, et cetera. And do you, do you think that 2020 in particular, like there's where I remember 2016, that a lot of my like anti-fascist friends, and I actually went to some of these, you know, went and, you know, fought with Nazis in Sacramento and in Berkeley, you know, 26, 20, 2016, 2017. Now it seems like that's just like, you know, that is everywhere. And so it's like, is it connected to this like sort of system overflowing, boiling over that 2020 seems to be worse? It seems like it's a watershed year as far as like the far right goes. Well, it's also a watershed year for the left. So yeah, have, that's true too. Yeah, I mean, I think if we're going to look at the statistics, we also have to remind ourselves that, you know, the movement on the streets right now coming from Black Lives Matter is maybe the biggest social movement that the United States has ever seen. Um, the number of uh, counter protests and sort of vigilante activity is completely dwarfed by the massive, you know, social movement in the streets. And we should really kind of like, we should take heart in that because of the sheer numbers of people who are on our side and they're not embarrassing themselves. You know, they're out in the streets and they're, you know, um, doing really courageous work. Obviously, sometimes there's, there's, you know, catastrophic incidents where people do things that are, you know, um, uh, terrible, you know, you can't actually have control <laughs> and, and, and um, there are absolutely aberrations, but, you know, by and large, this is like a completely inspired and inspiring movement right now. Um, at the same time, yes. Um, and you mentioned 2016, and this is where it's so, it's again, it's so upside down, is that in 2016, this is when you had Joey Gibson, you know, um, all of these different far right actors coming into the streets and, and insisting that they want, all they wanted was free speech. You know, all they wanted was to come out and wave their flags. And, you know, these Antifa left wing um, Nazis were, were coming out and, and suppressing them. And this was very persuasive for a lot of liberals, right? For a lot of centrists and, and, and people in the center right, um, this moved them. And that was really shocking because, well, it wasn't surprising, but it's still kind of shocking because, you know, the obvious counter argument is that, you know, they're, they're not just going out and, you know, criticizing their government in a way <laughs> like, a, you know, a, a free speech mandate. They were inciting violence and they were, they were obviously, you know, organizing hateful movements to oppress fellow citizens. Um, but at the same time, what we're seeing now is the total inversion of all of that. Um, I mean, they're on, they're on Twitter rejoicing when protests are canceled due to credible threats. They're, they're going around on social media, you know, um, posting videos of, you know, 
three to 500 right wingers shouting down a group of like 50, you know, high school and college students uh, in Boise, you know? Um, I mean, it's, it's like, it's, it's really intense. uh, The degree to which they have totally flipped on, you know, their, their um, sort of constitutional mandate and, and moved towards total violent oppression. Uh, without taking a step back and examining the the rhetorical twist, but I don't know. I, um, we'll see what happens with the election. Um, you know, kind of talking about the election for a moment. You know, there's a lot of potential for election day 2020. The the potential for, for violence is high. How do you think that this will play out? Well, there, I mean, it could go one of two ways. Um, Biden just absolutely destroys Trump. Uh, There's just a massive sort of tactical vote against um, the slide towards authoritarian uh, right-wing domination. And Trump is basically humiliated and forced to step down. Um, Or it's at all close and Trump basically throws a switch, you know? He's just like, you know, this is a fraud. This is a, this election is, you know, uh, correct. And that would probably lead to a lot of people coming out into the streets and protesting, um, which then would lead to a lot of militia coming out and, you know, making sure the Antifa doesn't show up or whatever. And that would possibly boil over into some kind of scenario where you have people who are extremely angry uh, saying uh, at, at Trump, you know, possibly rioting, and you have uh, right-wing forces in the streets possibly shooting them, um, which then, you know, could cascade into something like, uh, um, I kind of think it as, I think of it as like, you know, we have like a Northern Ireland scenario, you know, or we have kind of like a, where, Northern Ireland scenario where you have like a low intensity conflict, uh, you know, political forces, uh, sectarian militias fighting back and forth, but not necessarily getting into a kind of a Beirut, Lebanon situation where you have, you know, actual, you know, uh, armies around and you have um, these sorts of paramilitaries, militias, armies, all kind of fighting in cross, you know, uh, networks and there's tons of intrigue and that sort of thing. Um, in reality, I think we might end up with both, (laughs) um, where there's civil war in some areas of, of the United States breaking out. Uh, whereas in other areas of the United States, there isn't. And, uh, in other areas of the United States, you have basically just sort of like urban, um, guerrilla type, low intensity, uh, and when I say low intensity, I still mean like IEDs and, and shooting people and stuff like that. Um, I just don't mean uh, like a full-blown civil war situation. So I think 2021 could end up being, you know, entirely the, the total disintegration of the United States in general. Uh, while it would still exist as a, as a union, so to speak, um, it would also not exist in many places, as we're already seeing with the designation of anarchist jurisdictions and stuff like that. So just like a lot of 
problematic territorial disputes. Um, so uh, that's why I kind of hope that everybody turns out and <laughs> votes against the bastard. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I could also like potentially like even if Biden wins in a landslide, they take back the Senate, which, you know, is, you, nothing is for sure. I could still actually see a lot of these like far right groups like being really unhappy about it. Trump calls it fake news because he's actually even recently said that as far as he's concerned, he won California and New York that, you know, it was just like a lot of undocumented people voting, you know, that sort of thing, especially with the pervasiveness of like conspiracy theories like QAnon, which is basically he's our savior. So they're trying to take him out. Uh, still, they're being like high levels of low intensity violence. Yeah. I mean, they wouldn't take it well. Right. It would it would be, I think, similar to uh, the, you know, 92 to 95, where you have a lot of far right wing groups uh, hatching these various plots, but also kind of getting tackled by federal law enforcement, which I think, you know, have still been sort of on the ball when it comes to Adam Waffen division and like neo-Nazi terrorist groups. Um, so yeah, yeah, some, some bombings, some assassinations, that sort of thing, maybe, but also pretty weak stuff given, yeah. given the grand scheme of what could actually take place if he comes within a margin of error, uh, of the, of, you know, the popular vote. Yep. Um, or the Electoral College, for that matter. Um, something you said a, a few minutes ago, which I think really needs to be stressed, is that the, the media loves the spectacle of uh, you know a lot of this stuff, you know, the Michigan State House and, and all these people. And, and these folks are dangerous, but uh, the other side dwarfs them. I mean, and I think that's really critical to keep understanding. And even, you know, to a large degree, Trump and, and Barr demonizing Antifa and anarchism hasn't flown very well, even you know, DHS and FBI have come out reports repudiating that and saying the real issue is right-wing violence. So um, having said that, I mean, you, you have clearly people who are willing to use violence, but I also think they're, they're a pretty small minority. Uh, so how does, you know, but, the, but to throw something else into it, the police are on their side too, which I think is the real issue. By themselves, they probably can't do much. With cops, they can do a lot. So how do you like kind of mix that all together? Um, you have this, you know, kind of not a not a majority group by any means a, a fairly small number of people willing to use violence like at charlottesville or portland or wherever but they're also in, in cooperation with local police forces right so um i mean that is that is like a big kind of issue right uh we've seen in a couple of incidents where uh the far right actually uh calls the police on protesters and and just lets the police brutalize yeah. them <laughs> just uh so so i mean um you know and and this is something with trump as well that he's been kind of uh uh working toward is is uh usurping this sort of like local checks on police either by sending in federal forces or by you know really talking up the rank and file police unions instead of uh local you know um police uh forces or bureaus or what have you hey folks you're listening to alexander reed ross uh author of against the fascist creep and we're talking about political violence right-wing violence in the u.s uh you're listening to the green and red podcast uh if you want to become a patron please go to patreon 
greenandredpodcast.com backslash greenredpodcast to become a recurring donor, or you can go to greenandredpodcast.org and make a donation. And then if you want to follow us on our many social media channels, please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And then we'll also be playing uh, this on YouTube. So please go to our YouTube channel and subscribe. And I think Bob is going to kick us off with the next question. Yeah. And and, uh, just to kind of uh, piggyback on what Scott said, thank you all for listening. And please share these and uh, tell people about it. Um, We have really good folks on who I think really deserve to be heard, need to be heard uh, on a really wide basis. And, uh, you know, help us out if you can. We uh, turned down all that Soros and Koch Brothers money. We just won't take it. So (laughs) anyway, uh, to kind of offer an abridged version of the question I asked a minute ago, I think you made a really important point earlier when you said that the, the people on our side dwarf the right wing. And you know, even despite Barr's hysterics, uh, the DHS and FBI have said that uh, Antifa is not a, a dangerous, threatening group, that in fact the right wing is. So you're dealing with people who clearly are willing to use violence, but don't in any way come close to a majority, although they're being incited from the White House. But to me, the big issue there, which is to me the most frightening issue, is their their cooperation with local police forces, especially, in, as you said, police unions. So how do you kind of fit that into it? Because, you know, it's not just like, left-wingers versus, it's not Antifa versus Proud Boys, it's whoever, Antifa, whoever, BLM, whatever, versus whoever, plus the police. And that seems to me to be a really, you know, kind of the most chilling element of the last year or so, you know, that it's been so open and overt. Right. I mean, there used to be kind of like this theory of a three-way fight that the police uh, and the forces of the state would be one actor in a, a sort of a violent um, dynamic that also included a authoritarian group and uh, the and and anti-fascists and um, I think like that is being challenged <laughs> at this point um, in some ways um, by the by the collaboration that we've seen uh, in some cases between the police and uh, uh, either counter protesters or militia vigilante types who, you know, claim to be protecting the left. Um, I mean, it again, like, and I think you, you know, circling back to that point that you just made about um, about numbers and and the fact that there are more left wingers coming out into the streets, you know, by miles than than the the right wing forces. Um, the the collaboration that is occurring um, with the police goes two ways. In some cases, the police are marching with left-wing protesters. You know, they are um, actually sort of like doing what they are supposed to be doing. Um, And I mean, that's not to say like um, that this tendency isn't significant of police actually collaborating with the far right. In many cases, they're more sympathetic to the far right. Um, Generally, I would say they're more sympathetic to the far right because the far right is saying, pay them more, give them more leeway. We need more police brutality. (laughs) And um, I mean, uh, they, the left is saying there is, you know, a systemic crisis of racism and law enforcement in the United States that has a a history, you know, um, dating back to slavery. 
And so, you know, I mean, you have to understand that bias, that bias is going to exist. You don't have to sympathize with it, you know, <laughs> but like, that's a serious issue. Um, I think, though, you know, while it is oppressive and it is a, a, a terrible dynamic, the numbers are, uh, of left-wing protesters are going to end up, you know, being the real story and the real narrative and the real power in this current moment. So when we see equal numbers, right, of pro, and this has been, this has always been true in my experience. When we see equal numbers on both sides, there's a lot of insults being traded, the far right's getting ornery. The police will either, often either step back and do nothing or, um, you know, they'll they'll sort of take the side of the far right and in oftentimes both are the same that's the same thing um if there's way more leftists than people on the far right then oh boy they will chaperone they will you know they will you know fulfill their role and if any you know if there's a uh, uh, the scent of violence in the air, then here comes the flashbangs and the tear gas and all that kind of stuff. Obviously, you know, that's not what we want. And I think, you know, looking at Portland, you know, there's a tendency to, to think of this as just business as usual. This is just what happens. This is how it has to be. And the local government doesn't really get involved and doesn't really support the anti-fascist protesters at all. Um, but they certainly could. And the more of us, I suppose, there are on the streets, um, the harder it is for the collaboration between police and the far right to actually hold power in the streets and in, in politics. I don't know if I'm making any sense there. No, yeah. totally. You know, uh, interesting, Frank Mink, who's a former neo-Nazi, who's like, definitely moved to the left. He actually was the inspiration for Edward Norton's character in American History X. Uh, he said something that I'm going to play the video of here in a second. But, you know, after I watched that video, I actually did a little research on him. And he actually talked about how at least like he had a, you know, on the left, anti-fascists, anarchists, we have like affinity groups. Seems like he had a similar type crew when he was a neo-Nazi. And he said that at least three members of his crew had actually become cops as they got older. And then he also talked about in the early 90s going to some like white nationalist convention or something like that. And David Duke was there telling people to become police officers, join the military, things like that. And so, you know, in your in your studies research, how much how how what is the, how much is that happening? So I think that there are two things, right? There's there's you know fascists joining the police in a as a form of like entryism, and then there's the police just being far right, you know, in general. Um, I they're think, already they're already there. <laughs> <laughs> there's yeah. there's far less of you know infiltration and entryism than there is just of things like police gangs, you know, the executioners. There was a really good expose on the executioners in uh, South Central recently and and it's terrifying it's absolutely terrifying we have you know this this long-running issue with the portland police where this guy named kruger interestingly started going around like 
he created a kind of like a memorial in Portland parks to I think it was some kind of like Nazi, some kind of Nazis. Um, and that was odd. He also like took a vacation around Germany uh, for his honeymoon and like took photos at these various, I think like historical Nazi sites. And, you know, at first the police were like, ah, he's a hobbyist, you know. Um, and then, and then uh, he was, I think he was removed for a little while and, and, I, and he was disciplined. And then they expunged his his, the disciplinary action from his record and reinstated him and I think put him in vice. So it's a systemic and institutional problem. We do have this, this issue with, you know, far right wingers joining the police. That is a really big deal. Um, we also have an issue with the police supporting Trump. Police in thin blue line flag, which is, you know, carried and bandied about by, you know, some really sinister far right forces. Um, it's, I mean, I think it's almost the equivalent of police just coming out with like three percenter garb. Uh, but um, that's really... That's really something that, you know, Black Lives Matter showed is that when push comes to shove, you know, the far right and the police are going to start supporting each other. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, you know, this is also what we're seeing with vigilantism, that ultimately the far right seeks the state of order um, that, you know, vigilantism reflects insofar as they emulate the police and they want to be the police and they want to be able to do things that the police aren't even able to do. Like they want to be super police. And yeah, it's, it's a big kind of fantasy complex that they have that, you know, has its roots in history, as you, as you mentioned, Scott. This is, I'm sure, a question you get all the time. And, and I think we know some of the answers to it, uh, which kind of goes to the motivation of a lot of these far right groups you studied. Um, you know, they're racist. Uh, they have these conceptions of whiteness and so on. But is there anything else that kind of like, you know, kind of draws them in? Is it, uh, you know, they're stronger in particular parts of the country, you know, uh, but is there anything other than these kind of, you know, surface issues like being racist or being white supremacist or like, you know, play with guns or, you know, whatever, not, uh, you know, being involuntarily celibate or whatever. Uh, is there more to it than that? So looking at the data, this is a picture of, you know, the demographic composition of counties in which these planning uh, mm. incidents are taking place, <clears throat> right? They're not determined by population density. Um, so it's not just mapping cities, you know, <laughs> vigilante incidents are taking place all over the country uh, in suburban and rural counties as well as urban counties. Um, so what does that mean? Um, well, if you look at the picture of the uh, counties represented uh, in the data uh, demographically, um, what we're seeing is that they have slightly higher MHI, median household income, they're slightly younger and they're slightly more diverse. And I think the picture that it's painting is that for the first time really, Black Lives Matter has shaken the suburbs. Um, they've come out to, and actually not come out to, but they've arisen in suburbs that are changing. The suburbs are becoming younger, they're becoming more diverse and they're changing. And I think that what we see with the counter protesters are these suburban older white males who feel like their hegemony is being challenged um, and they're scared. 
you know, they moved to the suburbs because they wanted to avoid all this, you know, kind of politics and, and, uh, and stuff that you'd get in urban life. And this is part of why they're so motivated by the disinformation about Antifa busing in from Portland, right? <laughs> they, they don't imagine that this could ever hey. take place where they live. Right. You know, a lot of people, you know, moved out to the suburbs during the white, white flight period. And they feel like this is encroaching on them and they feel like there's nowhere left to hide, you know? <laughs> so they're mortified and they're scared that they have to confront reality. Um, they have to confront the, the actual problems in our society and they have to kind of take a side to an extent. Like, do you continue to ignore or deny, you know, <laughs> that that people are equal and that our society is oppressive and that it's unjust or are you going to you know basically just turn into a counter protester you know are you going to to support the oppression so i think that that is the the wedge right and it's driving people insane <laughs> people are just losing their minds and just showing up you know in the streets of their suburbs with AR-15s, you know, waving them around as as totally peaceful, you know, uh, uh, young people are just, you know, marching through their suburbs. It's, um, I've never seen anything like it, um, but it's definitely, I think it, it reverberates with the trends of the 1970s coming up to the present day, 60s and 70s. I'm going to play the video of Frank Mink, unless Bob has a follow-up question. No, no, that's... And I have a question with it. Yeah. And so this is this is Frank Mink. He is a uh, uh, former skinhead. He was the inspiration for Edward Norton's character in American History X, talking about Antifa. I want to tell you what I know about Antifa, being that they used to be one of my enemies. The country owes Antifa a huge thank you. Antifa occupies so much time of neo-Nazi groups that they have not been able to do as much damage as they wanted to over the last 20 or 30 years. They still have done terrorist attacks. It's the leading terrorist attacks in the country's right-wing extremists, and Antifa's been on the front lines fighting those groups, and they occupy so much of their time having to fight those young men and women fighting anti-fascism, like all of us are. And so my, my kind of my question here is, in a sense, this is a, uh, a good story about neo-Nazis and fascists, like someone who like kind of turned it around. Uh, how, how much do we see this? How much do we see people on the far right actually, you know, sort of shift some of their views and um, become liberal or left? I think it's hard to say. Um, you know, I think it's fairly common uh, people get de-radicalized, they change their political uh, views, or they kind of get more moderate as they get older. Um, I think a lot of times it happens because of the people they're around, you know, they just sort of lose, uh, lose faith in the people they're around who are incredibly dishonest. <laughs> um, and uh, I don't know. I, I think I think it I think it definitely happens. It is a phenomenon, um, and I don't think that they deserve you know kudos for not being you know fascists anymore. I mean, it's like saying 
you get kudos for for only murdering a few people and then moving to uh, some other country. But it is important, and de-radicalization de work is is really important. It's really important, um, especially for kids these days. I tell you, kids these days. Sorry. <laughs> Um, but like, yeah, but I do think, you know, we've, we've seen a lot of like high school kids getting into super violent, you know, fascist movements through, you know, video games and, and through, uh, um, image boards and, and, and that sort of thing, uh, YouTube, <laughs> um, and they really, they need people in their lives, you know, to, to counsel them and to show them that, you know, there's other things they need to be doing uh, than like wasting their lives. Um, so, so yeah, I'm a big believer in uh, getting more of that, uh, you know, having more sort of de-radicalization programs, going to high schools, talking to people, talking through this, the, problems uh in the world today and showing people that there are other ways you know of of um expressing themselves and of thinking about things than the ones that you know then QAnon and that sort of thing yeah i think but i think it's also like the hardest it's like the it's like serious hard work you know so it's not it's not like the glory and the glamour of like throwing bumblebee tuna at people wantonly <laughs> i don't know if y'all saw trump uh claiming that uh, uh protesters are throwing bumblebee tuna oh it's tuna now. i remember the bags of soup <laughs> yeah. yeah no no he's he's moving on from the tuna from now yeah yeah uh, saw somebody say in this economy um but uh yeah no I, I i mean yeah it is it's i think that it's it's super important work that needs to be done and can be some of the most effective things just reaching out to to one person you know one person at a time you know and and just changing things that way you know uh, if you study political violence obviously it's overwhelmingly used by the, the state forces of the state intervening in strikes and you know things like that uh but there's uh, a lot less, not much, actually, I think, among people who are, I don't want to call them lefties, but, you know, not part of that. So you have some, you know, slave rebellions and you have a lot of labor, kind of aggressive labor uh, actions in the late 1800s, you know, with the groups like the Wobblies, um, but not a whole lot over, you know, over, oh, you know, a lot of it was reactive, like, you know, the Battle of Blair Mountain when the, the government sends 3,000 troops in. Um, I guess this is kind of more of a philosophical, you know, uh, idea. Like, you know, we we kind of on on the left praise that, right? We're nonviolent. They shouldn't be using violence. You shouldn't even be breaking windows. Which, you know, I think there's a, an issue over what violence really is. But um, and I don't, I'm not trying to like set you up to instigate violence or incite people. But do you think the left is kind of a, a victim of being not aggressive enough? Let me just put it that way. And it doesn't necessarily mean they should be. You know, I think Scott in the prep notes had something about like the John Brown Rifle Club and the Socialist Gun Club and things like that. And I'm not even really referring to that. You know, I'm just saying, like, do you think that the left has kind of paid a price for being so civilized, you know, uh, so civil over the over, the, especially recently? I don't know. I don't know. Um, that's a very complicated, you know, scenario. 
I don't think I'm qualified really to uh, to sort of develop that. Um, I think that um, in terms of you know what the left has been doing, uh, the right, you know, uh, conceptualizes the left as an, a, a, an insurgency, and actually has has uh, you know industry has categorized the environmental movement as an insurgency. Uh, you've had, you know, eco-terrorism being bandied about by uh, the Republican Party as just sort of like a mainstream thing, <laughs> you know. Um, and, you know, so I'm just trying to think back in my own experiences, you know, in the sort of anarchist scene or, you know, radical ecology movement, like, would it have helped if we were, you know, more violent or something like that? And I don't, really think we would have accomplished any goals by by using those kinds of tactics and i think that you can open a really really dark door by sort of adopting you know those methods and even like apologizing for people like, like ted kaczynski so so yeah i i don't think so i think like i think that the left has uh been you know doing you know, I don't want to say like doing great, but like, uh, you know, doing what it can in the in the current um, kind of like material conditions or what have you. And you know, we've seen the left gaining a lot of uh, of um, power in in some cases. Um, and I think like it it really comes back down to like the question of what's at the core of politics and 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 what you know, motivates people to join movements and to change things. And, uh, and I don't, I, I, I mean, I might be wrong, but I just really don't think it's, it's violence per se. I think that there, there have to be other means of political persuasion. And I'm not an advocate for violence, I guess. Well, I mean, it doesn't even necessarily have to be that. I would, like, some of the stuff we've seen in the last few months, I would actually call far more aggressive. I mean, uh, violence as a strategy is more than problematic because it's so disproportionate. You know, the state and these crazy right-wing groups and the cops <laughs> can, can overwhelm you. But at the other, on the other hand, being civil all the time and saying, oh, just vote four years from now, you know, is, is obviously, I think, more problematic. So, uh, you know, my argument would be that, you know, I've done work, I've been writing about this for a long time, is that, you know, when things happen, it was because of, of I think, a more aggressive or assertive approach um, you know, even King called, you know, the civil rights movement, he called it militant, even though it was nonviolent. Yeah. And and I think, you know, this idea that, you know, liberals condemn people in the streets as much as the right wing does. You know, they shouldn't be spray painting Target and vandalizing, you know, local shops and things like that. And so I think, you know, you have a real, real problem strategically. You know, I mean, I'm not saying it's a good idea to go out there and get in a pitch battle because, you know, it's, it's going to get really bloody and ugly very early. And it's one that I don't think our side can win, you know, over the long run. But at the same time, you know, I just wonder, like, you know, like what you saw this summer was clearly an escalation, a ramping up on, on the left, you know, in the streets, like not, not yielding, you know, pitch battles, something that I never thought I'd see anytime soon. So, I mean, how do you see that playing out? Are you going to continue to see these street fights? Are they going to continue to kind of have this bizarre or scary kind of stability or is it, is it gonna is it gonna explode 
I don't know. I mean, we're at, we're talking what um, three days from zero hour. <laughs> the um, the uh, right is mobilizing in Portland on Saturday. So, oh, uh, you know, I I mean, it's a really kind of like an edge of the seat type of thing. You know, we're we're seeing every week there's something that could blow up into you know a uh, a um, incident with national repercussions like uh, Stone Mountain, for example, very recently, right? There was like a, um, a right-wing rally to defend Stone Mountain and uh, a lot of anti-fascists came out to oppose them. And, uh, you know, there was a line of, you know, 100 yards or more of military vehicles that were stationed just around the block, you know? Um, yeah, and so, so, so I think that, you know, we have to take this kind of thing really seriously. I don't see the left stepping back. I think people, you know, I think Trump has has polarized society to a degree that uh, that is inciting people. You know, I think people are doing what they have to do. This is what happens when people are repressed. They, they rise up um, against their oppressors. And uh, um, I wouldn't call them, I wouldn't call, I wouldn't say things are too civil right now. <laughs> Um, I think, uh, I, I, but yeah, again, I, I think we'll see what happens. You know, I know that the right wing is, is, you know, they want blood. They want to kill people uh, in Portland. They, they want to kill people in Portland and police aren't going to stop them. The mayor isn't doing anything to stop them. Um, there was a guy at a protest just a, a month or two ago who was just waving around a pistol, uh, probably pointed it at about 40 different people while he was doing it. And uh, he hadn't been picked up or anything. Uh, police yeah. said that they were looking for him. Yeah, right. So, And everybody knows who he is. <laughs> Alan Swinney. Um, yeah. So there isn't any accountability. And uh, it's the Wild West. So, <laughs> Well, even uh, today in Louisville, could be uh, before Portland because the uh, Breonna yeah. Taylor decision is supposed to come down later. So, yeah. Um, yeah, there's a lot of cities right now that are kind of have a, a burning fuse. I know, and Louisville's such a great town. You hate to see this uh, in, in Louisville. I just love that place so much, you know? The whole Midwest is just really just an awesome, uh, awesome place, um, dear to my heart. And, uh, it's it's really hard to watch stuff like this happening. Um, in Bethel, Ohio, a really great example there. S suburb of uh, Cincy, I think. There was a protest, like 50 people, 50 locals out there, you know, just sort of this, you know, high school kid, you know, and uh, her one of her teachers and like parents and stuff like that coming out just to, to, to wave signs around. 800 bikers and clan and all kinds of just terrible people show up all kinds of filth um and and uh 10 different incidents of of like assault recorded um and no citations i don't think so yeah it just breaks your heart it's so terrible kind of moving probably towards the end of our time here uh, my wrap-up question, because you actually talked a little bit about, you know, how industry and politicians have gone after environmentalists as eco-terrorists. Uh, eco-fascism has also been a little bit, uh, has been on the rise. It's a term that we've been hearing more 
Um, you know, we saw the the shooter in El Paso had a manifesto that talked about, you know, stopping immigration uh, for climate reasons and things like that. I've also, I also heard a story about a, um, someone who was like an earth firster and attended an earth first camp like 10 years ago, who now was like moving into the eco-fascist camp. Do you, um, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I think that guy was in the, the humble tree set uh, at one point, uh, and then moved on to become part of Adam Waffen division or something like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, then that was like, like a, that was a pretty tight tree sit. I think that they had like uh, 40 trees tied in together. If I'm not mistaken, I might be thinking about the wrong one. And I, you know, used to know people who were in that tree sit, you know, and like really sweet, and good-natured people, um, although there was one guy. And anyway, um, <laughs> so fancy that. I mean, yeah, I mean that's real. It's like it's like that's that's the the fascist creep, right? It's like it's like you've got your really sweet, awesome group, and and everybody's got like solidarity, and you're feeling great. And then there's that other guy, and you know nobody wants to kick him out, but like says some weird shit sometimes, and kind of look through my friend's phone, and you know, like there's there's always that guy, and it's like you've got to kick that guy out. <laughs> like that's a sketchy dude. Get yeah. rid of him. And yeah. that's <laughs> um, but like yeah, I think that we're seeing um, the rise of fascism broadly and that with more climate fueled incidents around the around the world it's harder and harder to avoid ecological discussions and whether or not you believe that you know um, climate change is anthropogenically forced which it is um, but a lot of the right doesn't believe it you still have to contend with like really crippling ecological, you know, catastrophe uh, on the rise. And so, you know, how do you do that when you don't accept climate change? You can just blame, you know, people that you already hate, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, and they kind of play down the whole climate aspects because, you know, the science is overwhelming. Um, so they don't really want to get into that discussion too much, but some of them are starting to sort of flirt with it, which is, you know, uh, I think kind of, a little, <laughs> I, you know, I'm a little torn. I'm like, well, at least you admit it now. And then also I'm like, oh, well, that could mean that more people might find you reasonable because you're not spitting out pseudoscience. <laughs> but, you know, maybe that will open a door for them and they won't be, be racist anymore. Probably not. Um, anyway, um, so... Yeah, so basically they just they just blame all the uh, all the environmental catastrophes on people they hate. You know, you've got Antifa starting forest fires from Australia to uh, the Pacific Northwest, according to these guys. You've got um, you know immigrants destroying the border instead of the actual border wall. <laughs> um, you've got uh, you know overpopulation plaguing you know the environment instead of you know industrial you know, mass production and, and um, uh, waste, which is wildly unbalanced. Um, and just general uneven development, which leads us to that kind of uh, economic geography where we have to contend with what capitalism uh, means to, uh, to the world. So yeah, I guess it's just like to understand why these things are emergent right now, we have to 
except I think that uh, the world is entering into a crisis point where, uh, you know, the tipping points are, are, you know, are passing us by a mile, uh, uh, passing us by every, every day. And, you know, on one side, we can start doing something about it. We have to start doing something about it. And on the other side, you know, the forces that are bringing it about are arrayed against us and they are fighting harder than ever, uh, perhaps, to, to prevent um, us from saving the world. <laughs> Sorry to break things down in like a comical uh, fashion, but um, the stakes are super high, right? The stakes are super high. And, um, and we can't let infiltration uh, tear apart the sorely needed solidarity um, that will, you know, help us um, uh, change the world. I think we're getting close to the end. So I, I want to thank you uh, so much for coming on. I'm, I mean, even though, you know, obviously things are very bleak right now, you know, what we've seen in the last six months, especially has been also very heartening. Uh, you know, Antifa, despite the best efforts of, you know, Trump and Barr and these folks, uh, really is kind of I think better, you know, accepted now than it was, you know, six or eight months ago. You know, uh, there are overwhelming numbers of people in the streets, uh, far more than than uh, the media would let you know, because they love the spectacle of guys with AKs at the Michigan State House. So, um, you know, I really appreciate the work you've done and kind of letting us know all about this stuff. And uh, you know, hopefully going forward, uh, you know, we'll uh, we'll have better days ahead of us. So, thanks very much and. For people who watch this or listen to it, please share it. And uh, we've been talking today with Alexander Reed Ross, uh, adjunct professor of the Department of Geography at Portland State University, doctoral fellow at the Center for Analysis of the Radical Right, uh, research fellow at Political Research Associates, and author of Against the Fascist Creep, which is a great book. And uh, I went through and did a lot of, I've read it, and then I went and did a lot of re-reviewing of it the last couple of days. And so uh, we're also joined by, uh, is that bootleg? This is bootleg. All right, bootleg. <laughs> and uh, you've been listening to the Green and Red podcast. You know, become a patron at patreon.com backslash green red podcast or make a one-time donation at greenandredpodcast.org and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And then also become a subscriber for our YouTube channel. And we will have this interview up soon on YouTube as well as all of your audio podcast platforms. Thanks for listening in today, folks. We'll talk to you again soon.